This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And what often happens, I think, in any organization is that people move to channels like WhatsApp, sometimes because they're trying to do something bad. I've seen in an internal investigation an email chain where people have said, this looks bad, we shouldn't mention it in email, let's move to WhatsApp. And individuals think that WhatsApp is encrypted. That was Jonathan Armstrong. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the award-winning Live with GDPR, a podcast where Jonathan and I take up data protection, data privacy, GDPR, and related issues. In this episode, we take a look at a National Health Service enforcement action involving misuse of WhatsApp and private data. It's certainly a cautionary tale that I know you will enjoy for this episode of Life with GDPR. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong from a short summer hiatus for the award-winning Life with GDPR. Jonathan, first of all, welcome back from the wilds of Cornwall. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Thanks very much, Tom. And yeah, successful time in Cornwall. Thanks for everyone for the good wishes on our shop. So I will say with some certainty that data privacy, data protection, and violations thereof have not suspended during our summer hiatus, and you are interested in, I think, some hospitals in the north of England, if I've got that right. What interests you? Yeah, it's in Scotland. And finally, for those of you who are watching the film rather than just the audio, we finally have an alert to match the wallpaper in my study. And it's a a Scottish case, and it involves an NHS trust in Lanarkshire as Most of you will know who listen to these podcasts, the health service is largely in the public sector in the UK. So this was a public sector hospital. And it's an interesting case, I think, for a whole host of reasons. First thing to say is that the investigation is ongoing, not led to a fine yet, could do in the future. But it's, uh, in some respects, a relic of COVID. And what happened is the healthcare provider was anxious to keep going during the COVID pandemic and indeed to prioritize the healthcare of COVID victims in those early days of the pandemic. And as a result, it realized that it might need to communicate more intuitively with healthcare professionals and it's what it called its gold command, its senior management. And as a result, extreme times dictate extreme circumstances. It permitted the gold team to communicate via WhatsApp. So they didn't have to communicate only on the corporate network. And what seems to have happened is that WhatsApp was enabled on trust-owned devices, on the devices that the healthcare 
provider-owned. People outside the gold team started using WhatsApp as well. And this case concerns some 26 members of staff who had a WhatsApp group to share details, which included details of patients and patient care. There were some 500 entries on this WhatsApp channel. They included images, they included videos, they included screenshots. And it seems that one person was added to the WhatsApp group in error. They shouldn't have been in that group at all. Now, obviously, under GDPR, health-related data has a higher protection. It's called special category data. Some people call it sensitive data because that's the definition under the old legislation. And you have to do extra things to protect that data. Interestingly here, the trust told the Information Commissioner's Office, the Data Protection Authority, of this incident, which obviously is a data breach, but it hasn't yet told the patients concerned. And it did an equation, and it said the likely distress and harm of telling the patients would outweigh the benefit in telling them. Now, in health cases, you can do this balancing test, and I've done it previously in cases I've been involved with. It's an incredibly tough thing to do to decide that in people's best interests, you oughtn't to tell them what's happened to them. Usually, you'd need a clinician to support that view, but it seems that the ICO have decided that is, at least so far as we know initially, a decision that the trust could take. But to stress, if ever you were taking that decision, you'll need appropriate advice. You probably need clinical advice as well. But I think this case is much wider than healthcare, and it tells us a whole load of other things as well. I spoke at the Masters Conference, an e-discovery conference, a couple of weeks ago, and that's under the Chatham House rule. But one organization there said that in internal investigations, the majority of information, interesting documents aren't emails. 60%-ish of the documents that are relevant in internal investigations that they did weren't emails. And what often happens, I think, in any organization is that people move to channels like WhatsApp, sometimes because they're trying to do something bad. I've seen in an internal investigation an email chain where people have said, this looks bad, we shouldn't mention it in email, let's move to WhatsApp. And individuals think that WhatsApp is encrypted, and it's off the network, and often they have unguarded views in WhatsApp where they think they're not being watched versus the more guarded view in email, which they know is subject to potentially discovery or investigation. But in some respects, that's a false premise. Obviously, if you use WhatsApp, you're sharing data with big tech, and you don't know whether the images of that individual in a hospital or whether the contract that you're talking about over WhatsApp is being shared more widely? Is it being used to 
enrich advertising sales. You don't know any of that. And obviously, you can't assume that WhatsApp is secure. So I think for any compliance professional listening to this, any data protection officer, it's a reminder, if you like, that that just as rivers run endlessly to the sea and you can try and block their passage, but the river still flows, then so is the case with things like WhatsApp and communications. Even if you restrict people's corporate communications, then they'll find a way and they'll use some off-grid application to communicate instead. So it's a real warning, I think, for people that you can't set policies as easily in the modern age about communications. People are going to use what's easier to them, particularly junior members of staff. And if junior members of staff are frustrated by email and it being restrictive and not as chatty, then you better find a way of accommodating that rather than rather than ignoring the problem, because it's a problem that isn't going to go away. And I think the issue that we've probably got at the moment is a lot of individuals setting policies are not digital natives, and the people we're setting policies for are digital natives. So they will know applications to do their job that you might not know exist, and they'll be happy to use them without thinking the consequences through thoroughly. I think there's a couple more lessons as well. A number of my clients moved to alternative forms of communication during the pandemic. If they didn't have enough laptops to go around or mobile devices, then that was probably a sensible decision, probably a defensible decision. But we're out of the main throes of the pandemic for now at least. So you've got to revisit those emergency measures. If you didn't do a data protection impact assessment for Zoom, you have to do one now. If you didn't do one for Microsoft Teams and you moved people to that platform, you've got to do it now. If you permitted WhatsApp during the pandemic, review that now. If you permitted home printing during the pandemic, review that now. We've got to go and look at those extreme measures that we allowed at the start of the pandemic, see which still are being used by the business, and review the compliance issues. That's almost always going to involve a data protection impact assessment. And we'll have to retrofit compliance to those channels that we used. And then maybe the other lessons are fairly obvious. Working from home is here to stay. Deal with it. Your systems have to deal with it as well. So even if you're calling people back into the office four days a week, that's still one day a week they're still working from home. You've got to get your data breach plan in order. That's got to be fine-tuned. It's got to enable you to see the issues quickly and deal with them, report them to regulators. You're going to have to rehearse all this stuff, and you're going to have to review your policies and procedures to check that they work. So as I say, I think it starts off as a, a relatively small case involving a healthcare provider in Scotland, But I think there's a lot of lessons for organizations to learn as a result. Jonathan, I'd like to add maybe a couple of other things that compliance professionals can do. And even if they're not direct lessons, 
from this case, get your opinion on them. Certainly setting your policies and procedures is a step, but it's only a step. Then you need you have to educate on those and you have to communicate on those. And even if you're our age, dare I say, setting policies from people who are younger than us, that's only step one. You have to communicate on those. You have to train on those. You have to follow up. Like any compliance policy, you have to have, I don't want to say continuous training and communications, but at least enough to make people aware. Then you have to monitor their compliance with that particular policy and procedures. And we now have some technical solutions which will allow a company to do that. So could we take, uh, I guess, would those be additions to setting the policies and procedures that you would advocate a company utilize or something different? I I think you're absolutely right. I think that the best policies are, I wouldn't say the work of a committee, because we all know that if you ask a committee to design a horse, you get a camel. But I think you do have to speak to people at all different levels of the organization, particularly when you're looking at technical related policies. And you've got to get buy into those policies. And in these days of the great resignation, et cetera, et cetera, we need carrot and stick. The days of stick being the only way to enforce corporate policies have gone. And then I'd suggest another thing to think about when you're setting policies is that some people think they will bypass the policy for the greater good. I'm loath to criticize the 26 members of staff here, firstly, because I don't think we've got enough details to criticize them. And secondly, because they probably thought that they were doing the right thing, where in the start of the pandemic, they're trying to provide continuing healthcare to patients in a really difficult time. And so for any organization, it's not a stick solution. It's a, we thank you for your service. We thank you for your commitment, but, and that's the same in many organizations. Many people breach compliance policies because they think they're doing it for the greater good. And obviously, as you say, that's a to educate people. It's a mixture of policies and training. And by training, I don't mean sitting them down once a year and asking them to click through the dullest uh, online training known to man, properly engaging people in the compliance process and using nudge and giving them small messages and being there when they've got an issue, when they've got this conflict between things like the need to prevent, to provide patient care and the compromise on data, to feel that they can genuinely talk to somebody in the organization about that and help resolve the conflict rather than just paddle their own canoe down the waterfall. Is that something either you or the greater quarterly compliance has begun to help companies with engaging training and communications? Yeah, definitely. Regrettably, a lot of the training we do is after an event. So it's trying to it's trying to impress a regulator that you've done something better than the training that didn't work. I think just as one indication, I think every single, I believe every single 
fishing incident that we have dealt with, every single one, the individual had taken an online fishing course. That probably tells you that it's not effective. And if you're relying on some off-the-shelf online fishing training to stop people click on links, you've probably already lost the battle. So I think for most organizations, we've done quite a lot of anti-phishing training, but only when somebody in the organization has clicked on the link. In an ideal world, people would do better training before the incident rather than beef up their training afterwards. Jonathan, I think what you started off with in terms of your commentary that I don't want to say this was a routine case, but a relatively small constrained matter. And we've got a lot of lessons learned and ideas that compliance professionals, data protection, and data privacy professionals can utilize going forward. So I look forward to our next conversation. Absolutely, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. If you've enjoyed our podcast, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever great podcasts are listened to. We've linked to the quarterly compliance news alert on this case. So for more information, check out that news alert and the quarterly compliance site. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.